My fear arrives unannounced. I know it's here, a shadow closing in around me. It feels like the darkest, deepest place one can travel to alone. Every day is a new battle against the same thing. I'm tired. I'm broken. When they ask me how I am, I lie. I'm surrounded by people, yet all alone. But somewhere, a voice whispers to me, hang on, don't give up, lift up your head. So I look to that hope, the light that leads me through the darkness, toward the coming of a dawn. Good morning. So let's begin, let's begin here. I, th I think that a lot of us struggle with anxiety. Now, as I've said to you before, I'm not a professional psychologist. I, 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 I am an amateur psychologist because I'd like to represent in the Olympics. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not a professional psychologist, so my opinions can be taken with, with that. But the, the more I talk about this sort of stuff and, and engage with people in this sort of stuff, the more I become suspicious that many of us struggle with anxiety. Not what we'd call acute anxiety, the type of anxiety that um, you, know, you feel when you feel like you're going to hit another car and you stamp on the brakes and everything kind of turns up in your head. Now, you need that type of anxiety. That's going to keep you alive on uh, many an occasion. But... There's another type of anxiety we call chronic anxiety, the type of anxiety that's persistent, that appears to be almost ever-present, and also is difficult to, difficult to find the source of, difficult to figure out what it is that it comes from. Uh, my suspicion is that many of us haven't ever thought to have that checked out, and a lot of us, I think, probably just don't think it's a problem. Uh, you know, we have, uh, we're doing quite well with ourselves. We're, we're kind of getting on fine. Uh, I say this with some experience because I was 35 before I went to talk to a therapist about my own anxieties and discovered within my very first session that the sort of conversation we're having made me realize this is something that I've been struggling with since I was in my early teens, but it's only now that I've found it unmanageable and find myself in front of a therapist. And there maybe is a sense, and, and I think you could be forgiven for thinking this, uh, although I don't think it's helpful, there, there maybe is a sense where we will say nowadays, well, it kind of feels like everybody has anxiety. You know, it's just kind of like the new thing, you know, that, that everybody's anxious about something. And, and I understand why people say that. I don't think it's helpful for us to say that, uh, but I understand why. I'm suspicious that some of the problem is actually our culture and society. I'm actually suspicious that the way that we do life nowadays, particularly uh, you know, in, in the kind of North American, kind of European context, let's just talk about that, or, or maybe let's just think about ourselves for a brief while. I think the way that we do life actually rewards the anxious person. There's almost a sense in which the way that we structure our society, certain forms of high-functioning anxiety are almost appreciated. If you're kind of highly strung, uh, or, or you're a bit of perfectionist, uh, or perhaps you're always busy, there's a kind of level at which, you know, you might be the perfect employee. Like, we might actually want to employ you in our company. Whatever our industry is, we're kind of, we want that type of person. Uh, think about this, whenever you meet somebody nowadays, and you ask, how are you? What's the most common response that we give? Busy, we say. It has become an answer to the question, how are you? 
It's not in any of the language books. If you're learning English as your second language, nowhere does it tell you. People will ask you, how are you? And you should respond, busy. But that is kind of the proper response because think about what happens if you don't respond busy, right? Imagine you're sat in your office tomorrow morning. Uh, Maybe you have a boss. And your boss pops her head around your office door and says, hey, how are you doing? And you decide to channel Radiohead and you say, everything is in its right place. (laughs) Or perhaps you say, you know what? I'm just feeling like I'm pretty zen right now. Everything's good, not too stressed. Everything's on top of things. Why don't you say that to your boss? Because what is your boss going to do the moment you say that? They're going to they're going to give you more work, right? So, so like, I don't want to let on that I'm not busy. And the truth is, I actually do feel busy all the time. But the thing is this, I think perhaps for the sake of propriety or perhaps our own ambitions, maybe it's just our privacy, most of us that struggle with anxiety learn to hide it in public. And I think one of the cruel things about anxiety is that's quite easy to do in our culture. The kind of temperature of our society is such that it's pretty easy to be quite chronically anxious and and nobody actually pick up on the fact that you're struggling with something. Take, for example, a well-loved children's classic, Winnie the Pooh. I don't know how much analysis you've done on Winnie the Pooh. If you're a parent, and uh, I want to just pass this out as a piece of advice, doing analysis on children's TV programs is a really helpful way to survive watching them 500 times. Uh, (laughs) So my wife and I, uh, our conversation when our daughter was in the Peppa Pig phase was to discuss the social structures happening in the Peppa Pig household. Um, When you kind of look at Peppa Pig's attempt to dismantle patriarchy with a positive image of women, it really helps you cope with the 500th viewing of George Lost His Dinosaur. Um, And similarly, you may want to come and look at something like Winnie the Pooh. Now, pretty much all of us at first watch realize that Eeyore, the lovable donkey in this story, ER's depressed. He lives in the gloomy place. You know, come on, there's, there's a little bit of a hint there. And this actually reflects our regular life, that often it is kind of easy to spot people, and, I, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but it is kind of easy to spot someone struggling with depression. They kind of give it away a little bit, and, we, and we, so we focus on that. And also our society kind of sees that as problematic, and therefore we want to fix that. Interestingly, Winnie the Pooh and his friends never do that with Eeyore. They just welcome him in to be part of their group, perhaps a lesson for us. But for me what's interesting is very few of a spot rabbit. And I think rabbit is, is, is a sort of high-functioning, well, he basically, I think he has high-functioning anxiety. Because what you see rabbit do on a pretty regular basis is he is trying to make everything perfect for everybody. He's hosting the party. He's planning the party. He's calling the need for a party. He's going to make sure the adventure goes well. He's going to make sure everybody has what they need for the adventure. Rabbit is an essential friend in Winnie the Pooh and Friends. But the interesting thing for me is, actually, I think he represents the journey that many of us with anxiety have. That in a weird, complex, and difficult way, our anxiety can sometimes be what makes us attractive to other people. The things that actually cause us a lot of torment actually make us the kind of people that people want to be around because they get things done. A cruel irony of anxiety is often the more anxious people are, the higher functioning they become. So as as they feel the anxiety growing, they just work harder and harder and harder to try and control this and make ourselves appear helpful. 
And so while our culture that we live in sees depression as a bit of a problem, because I think Western culture wants you to have one emotion, which is super enthusiastic all the time, anxiety almost becomes essential to modern life. In his book uh, uh, about this sort of subject, Dean Burnett uh, gives us a helpful definition. He says, mental disorders are generally described as patterns of behavior or thinking that cause discomfort and suffering or impaired ability to function in normal society. Did you spot the word in there? Normal. Like, there's a problematic word. And on one level, this word's problematic because everybody appears normal until you get to know them. Uh, and, and that's really helpful to remember for yourself when you stare in the mirror in the morning, but also helpful for when you're dealing with others, to remember that most of us are trying to appear normal in our day-to-day -day life. The interesting thing for me, however, is that normal is subjective. Normal adjusts and changes. It's actually a bad definition of things. That what we're really saying, and I think this is how we often think about it, is that as long as I can get by in normal society, I'm okay. I don't need to talk to anyone, I don't need to see anyone, I don't need any help. But what if, what if normal society starts to kind of raise the temperature? What if not dissimilar to kind of, you know the metaphor of the slowly boiling frog? I don't approve of you trying that, it's a, it's a metaphor. Um, <laughs> as the temperature of our society raises, what if being anxious and all of the baggage that comes with anxiety disorders are actually becoming more and more normal because our society, to an extent, depends on it. It demands it from us. It expects things from us that are actually above us and beyond us. Is it theoretically possible that a culture and a society could exist and develop in such a way that it's actually bad for our mental health? Let's explain it like this. Imagine for a second, if you'll go with me on a sort of thought exercise, imagine for a second that you discover some new technology. Uh, and this new technology, maybe that's what you, maybe you're a technology discoverer and that's your job, but for the rest of us, we're imagining this for a moment. Imagine you unearth this discovery that allows you to get all of your work done. That in itself would be a great discovery, wouldn't it? Some, you know. But imagine this technology allowed you to get all of your work done in half the time. Just like, let the Holy Spirit move through you for a moment. Just appreciate that thought. You get all of your work done in half of the time. So you could switch this machine on, and all of a sudden, everything's done, but in only half the time it ordinarily takes you. I'm feeling conversational this morning, so what I want you to do is just turn to the person next to you, and you're going to tell them what you would do with all of this time that you've just discovered. Now half of your time is free. You've got 30 seconds. I want you to tell them, and they'll tell you, what would you do with your free time? Okay. There's a temptation for me there to work this out as a real metaphor and just actually finish my sermon in half the time and prove that I have... All no, I'm joking. 
Okay, so your conversations, uh, just a little, can I, let's just give me, give me some feedback of some sort. Um, how many of you said you would, you would do more hobbies? Okay, a few, few more hobbies. All right, how many of you said, you know, I would just relax on the deck or whatever it is that you find relaxing? Anyone else? How many said I'd just spend more time with the kids? Okay. Maybe need to pray for our future. Um, <laughs> do you want me to tell you what you would actually do? Perhaps you know. If you invented or discovered a piece of technology that allowed you to do all of your work in half the time, do you know what you would do with the free time? You would do more work. Now, I don't maybe know all of you personally, but there's some research behind this that kind of helps us uh, get our heads around this. So take, for example, the 1920s. In the 1920s, the average housewife, uh, and I'm not now here commenting on patriarchal structures in the 1920s. This is just the research, okay? Don't, don't shoot me afterwards. Um, in the 1920s, the average housewife spent 51 hours of her week maintaining the family home, cooking, cleaning, washing, whatever is involved in maintaining the, the, the family home. Um, I realize when I say whatever is involved, that implies things about how my family home works that I will need to deal with later. Um, Sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, all of the things that are involved in maintaining the home spent 51 hours doing that. Between the 1920s and the 1960s, there was an immense technological advancements uh, in the area of, of kind of home care, if that makes sense. So electric stoves, refrigerators, freezers, washing machines, dryers, electric irons, vacuum cleaners, and other such technologies became ubiquitous that every house had one of these of some sort. So all of the things that used to be so difficult to do and required so much energy, all had technologies now that could make them considerably easier to do. So by the 1960s, looking after a home had changed radically. But in the 1960s, the time that the average housewife spent looking after and maintaining the home had gone up to 53 hours a week. 40 years, new technology, and yet more time was spent doing this. Like why, why is that? Well, essentially, this is, this is, the answer to this is found in a, a principle known as, as Parkinson's Law. And Parkinson's Law basically says this, that better technology creates higher expectations, therefore more work. That actually we invent technologies that we think will make our lives easier, they actually do the opposite. They just raise the expectations. How has email helped us in communication? Well, it's just meant we're less patient now. <laughs> it's just meant that I send a letter, and as opposed to waiting for it to arrive, you read it and reply, I want you to reply immediately. So our technology does strange things to us. Our society increases the demands upon us. And simply by thinking about what we're doing in terms of cleaning our house, I wonder if it kind of helps us draw the connections that is it possible that there's something about the way that we live as a people that causes us these problems. Now, what's difficult for us also is that there's no firm line in the sand that any professional knows about that helps us know when kind of general overwhelm and day-to-day -day stress sort of crosses the line and becomes chronic anxiety. We know there is a line. It's probably different for most people, but somewhere in all of us, there's a line where the sort of amounts of stress and overwhelm we're dealing with become too much, and we cross it and develop an anxiety problem. The difficulty is 
that once you've crossed that line, getting back across it to the other side is not only very difficult, but for most people, impossible. That anxiety becomes the thing that they have. And personally, this sort of bites a little bit for me because I've found that to be true in my own experience. So I found myself in my mid-30s, kind of a product of our own culture, I suppose, at some level, working hard, believing that, hey, listen, I can do anything I put my mind to, so let's try it. So, so I'm pastoring in a, in a local church. That's not hard. You only work once a week as a pastor. Um, so, so don't put too much pressure on that. Um, I was also um, in senior leadership at a seminary with a major teaching role in this seminary as well. Uh, in addition to this, I was also doing my PhD um, and, uh, and I, I, not, my PhD wasn't in mathematics, just so you know, because uh, I would have figured out that three part-time jobs don't go into one week. Um, but I tried. And, uh, and then in the midst of that, we, we started our family and, you know, figuring out how to be a dad, how to, how to make life work and all of that. And eventually all of these things kind of sprung up on me and, and caused me some problems. Everybody I tell this story says, like, no, duh. <laughs> like, I'm supposedly a pretty clever person, but this surprised me that I couldn't do all this stuff on my own. And, uh, I, uh, and I find myself in a therapist trying to unpack some of this. And I realized that one of the problems is I've set these expectations for our own life so high and just refuse to note any of the warning signs that are telling me this is getting a little too much. That actually all of these things that I'm doing all really demand all of my time and I'm not giving all of my time to any of them. And I wonder if I'm just another example of the kind of problems we have within our culture. Here's two other perspectives. One from Ann Peterson who says, burnout and the behaviors and weight that accompany it aren't in fact something we can cure by going on vacation. It's not limited to workers in acutely high stress environments and it's not a temporary affliction. It's the millennial condition. It's our base temperature. It's our background music. It's the way things are. It's our lives. Now, Anne's thinking about people 40 and under, but I'm not sure that the, the, the kind of zone is just as small as that. Is there something going on in our society? Is there a way of being that just has pushed us, that burnout and stress and anxiety, it's just what it's like to be alive and live in this part of the world? Or maybe something a little bit older. In Lamentations, Jeremiah, who's held to be the author, says, I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. As somebody that struggles with anxiety, I, I find a lot of resonance with this text from Jeremiah. I've been deprived of peace. People that are depressed and people that struggle with a variety of, of different uh, sort of uh, mental uh, challenges will often talk about how their wholeness and their completeness, and the, they just feel empty. They feel like it's not quite so much. And if you're depressed, that emptiness comes with a deep hollow. If you're anxiety, it actually comes from being overwhelmed with too many things. If it's hyperactivity or attention deficits, all of these things that are going on that leave us just not feeling peaceful. And then also he says that the things he had hoped for, they just weren't happening. I had hopes. And you get this sense from Lamentations that these hopes are not working out. 
And I wonder if for some of us it's worth thinking that, that, that why and, and how we experience, not why, sorry, but how we experience chronic anxiety is often when we don't receive what we think we need in any given moment. So you have a perspective and an idea of what it is that you think you need from this interaction, this moment, this, this situation in your life. And if you don't get those expectations, what happens is your brain starts to move into kind of overdrive. And your brain now starts processing through everything that's going on, everything that might be going on, and everything that could be going on. And this can happen in all sorts of varied situations. People with anxiety talk about how sometimes it just happens in a conversation. A person responds a particular way in a conversation or doesn't respond a particular way in an expected way in a conversation. And you start processing, well, is it something I said? Or uh, what are they thinking? And what might they be thinking about me as a result of that? And how might that be going on? And, and, and this sort of churns its way around. Uh, perhaps it happens when you don't get an email back. Perhaps it happens when somebody doesn't respond to a text. Perhaps it happens when a loved one isn't where you think they are and you're worried about them. There's all sorts of things that can simply trigger a person's brain now moving into overdrive. And what happens when this overdrive happen, it kind of takes place is the inner monologue, the kind of voice in our heads, why we talk about this series as kind of ghosts, the hauntings that go on within us, they move into overdrive too. And various thoughts and ideas and, and imaginations start coming into this person's mind. And for everyone, it's different. For some people, it's a particular conversation. For other people, it's the lack of a conversation. For some people, it's being in social environments, in, in, in the midst of a whole lot of people, and all of the stuff you have to manage when you're in a social environment creates anxiety. For some people, it's not being in social environments. For me, it's email. Like, what a horrible thing that is. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know personally the person that invented email. But goodness, when Jesus puts everything back together and restores everything, and I know there's going to be no peace and no violence, but when I find that guy, I am going to punch him in the face. <laughs> Assuming he's there to be found, you know. <laughs> he might be somewhere else. <laughs> but I get an email, and I'll be honest with you, I would rather preach a thousand sermons with no notes than reply to one email, right? Because I can't read your face when I'm sending you an email. I can't read your tone if I read what you said right. Will you read what I said right? How will we make sure that we're all saying the same thing? What if you respond badly and I should have said this and I shouldn't have said that? And I find it kind of, that's why I just would rather pick up the phone or run away. <laughs> and, and, the, and, and so far, I haven't yet found a job that doesn't require email. Somebody told me that I could move to Canada, live in an igloo, and everything would be fine. And then it turns out, actually, Canada's not like what the rest of the world thinks. And here I am, sending email, or not sending email, as the case may be. But our anxieties do really strange things to us. And even those of us that struggle with it don't really understand why. We know it doesn't make sense. We know that there's no logic to apply to, why would you do this but not do that? But that's the annoying thing about your mental health. It doesn't make sense sometimes. People would look at one person and say, well, why should they be depressed? Somebody would look at another person and say, they don't look like they have anxiety, but what goes on in a person's mind is so hidden and so hard for us to see. This is all a little tense, though, so let's take a brief commercial break. Um, I saw this just at the start of the month, uh, at the start of an article recommending which would be the best type of headphones for you. Five noise-canceling headphones that do nothing to drown out your inner monologue. <laughs> Buddhists tell us that this, or they describe this kind of over-processing of anxiety as the monkey mind. 
In his book on the subject, Daniel Smith says, a person in the throes of the monkey mind suffers from a consciousness whose constituent parts will not stop bouncing from skull side to skull side, which keep flipping and jumping and flinging feces at the wall and swinging from loose neurons like howlers from vines. And this might be going on inside a person's head, but it's really hard to spot the symptoms in others because there are so many. The chewed, ragged nails, the sweaty palms, the inability to sit still, and there are other symptoms as well, or perhaps none of these symptoms, because no one person is the same. And difficulty in spotting the symptoms in somebody else is probably matched by the difficulty in spotting the symptoms in ourselves. Like, how do we know about our own position in this? Are we just, oh, it's just life and life's a bit stressful, or is something quite damaging happening in our own lives? It can be hard to spot because we dismiss them so easily. Excessive worrying, being easily agitated, difficulty in concentrating, fatigue all the time because your brain is constantly working. Or what about the trouble sleeping? The interesting thing about insomnia is we often think that insomnia is a problem with our sleep. But actually what insomnia seems to come from is an inability to stop thinking. And if you've not created space for yourself to think properly during the day, when you lie down, your brain says, well, this is a good place to think now that nothing else is going on. So insomnia needs to be helped by giving ourselves some space. The problem is this, if you're suffering from depression or anxiety, your brain never has enough space to do all the thinking that it wants to do, so it will take your sleep time from you to try and work all of that out. And for some people, our anxiety just works in wanting to avoid people, in wanting to run out the side door from the office and stay in the car and not get out because we're just not sure we can face people. The difficulty is, I think is that we either dismiss this constantly until it becomes a problem. We dismiss it until we can't dismiss it anymore. But even then, I think the stigmas in our society are such that that when we can't dismiss it anymore, we don't then do what we should do, which is go and talk to someone. Talk to a professional, talk to a therapist, talk to someone you love. This part of me almost wants to say, talk to anybody that will listen, because it's better than what we often choose to do, which is to figure out ways to cope by ourselves and to self-medicate, because we're convinced that we can figure out what it is that we need to make things work. The problem is that self-medicating, self-medicating, I'm not talking about medication in general, but self-medicating your mental health is loaded with tragic irony. Because the problem is that what we're often looking for when our mental health starts to sort of gang up on us, if that's a, a fair metaphor to use, what we're looking for is control. I want control of my thoughts. I want control of where my brain works. And I I want control of what it is that's going on inside of me. But what we do is we switch to coping mechanisms and self-medications that do exactly the opposite of what we're looking for. They take control from us. So we switch to caffeine or to nicotine or to alcohol or to sedatives or to marijuana. And we think those things will surely help us. Those things will help us get through. And some of it is we take these things because they help us feel good. And if you're struggling with, with real serious challenges to your, to your mental well-being, life rarely feels good. So if you can take something that will make you feel good, then surely that would be a good thing, and that would help get back some of the gratification of, of ordinary life. The problem is that all of these things I've mentioned all have addictive qualities. And very often what happens is the addictive nature of these things becomes a similarly as big problem as your mental health was to begin with. And all of them affect our mental health in the process of their addictive qualities. 
So, in a sentence that you might want to put under, didn't think we'd talk like about this in church, alcohol and marijuana are actually really, really good for anxiety. So I've heard. <laughs> My mom listens to this podcast. Um, <laughs> But actually, there is some research and data out there that suggests that, yes, actually, these will help you with your anxiety. Uh, but there's a, there's a rub to that. Both of them exacerbate depression. So you treat your anxiety on one hand with one of these substances, but they're going to raise up another problem in you on the other side because they they're depressants, and that's what they'll do, and they have addictive and very damaging qualities to them. So then on that level, uh, put this under the second sentence um, that you don't expect to hear your pastor talk about, uh, perhaps cocaine does for depression what, what alcohol does for anxiety. But our response to that sentence is quite interesting because of our views on the legalities and social acceptability of cocaine. So we think, well, well that's not a good thought. But did we think the same when we talked about alcohol? See, and I find Andrew Solomon, who writes brilliantly on the subject of, of our mental health, he points out, I think quite helpfully and astutely for us, that most of us in our society are okay with addictions as long as the addictions allow you to continue to function in a non-disabling way. So what you do at home after work, as long as you're sober again by the morning, we're okay with that. As long as your smoke break doesn't get in the way of what it is that we're doing at work, as long as your habits and your addictions don't cause us to have to worry about you, we'll accept them. So as long as they're legal, and as long as they don't cause problems, we're okay. And at one level, we're talking about the extreme side of things here. And I feel the need to add the caveat just in case uh, you know, people misunderstand me. I am not counseling you to go down any of these routes, okay? This is, this is bad advice if you take it as advice. What to me strikes us as interesting is, is it's easy to look at the big side of things. You know, I, I, you know, I know somebody who struggles with an alcohol addiction. I, I, know, somebody, I know somebody who, you know, who, who leans into drugs to help them get through. I know somebody that takes certain pills. And it's easy to talk about that side, but what about the other side of things? Like, how often does your day at work require a glass of wine in the evening? And that might seem completely socially acceptable and very, very normal. And many of us might even say, well, that's what my day always looks like. But should that concern us a little bit? If something's going on in my day that requires alcohol just to help me get over it, we're in a pattern of things that are deeply unhealthy. Or what if we need something in the morning from a certain drive through just to get us through the day? Like, I can't face the day until I've had my cup of joe. <laughs> Now, does that need thinking about? Because is it just simply, I love the taste of this and I love the flavor of this, or is it something about my anxiety about having to face the day that is just overwhelming? So, are we really just having a glass of something, a mug of something, or a puff of something? Or are we medicating something deeper in our minds and our souls that we just don't want to face and talk about? Or maybe on the other side, you know, if... If the weekend brings to us the inability to just have one drink, but the requirement to kind of get smashed, is that just because you love to party? Or is it because there's just something haunting you in your mind, and if you can just get three or four hours where you don't have to think about anything, that makes everything a little bit better? Now, here's the thing. Our self-medications, our self-treatments, 
they actually do to us the very same thing that our anxiety does to us. They make us absent. They extract us from being present. One of the worst things about, well, you, you know how alcohol and drugs work. You, you understand what's going on with them, that they, you, know, you, you kind of meet a drunk person the day afterwards, and they go, oh, I have no idea what happened last night, because they were there, but they weren't there, if you know what I mean. But anxiety so often does the same thing. Depression does the same thing to us. They, they overwhelm us with things that take us to other places in our minds. And we can all have overwhelming questions. You know, what if my kids, you know, get sick? What, what, if, what if I get sick? What if I lose my job? What if my wife or my husband leaves me? What if, what if this war breaks out? What if David Attenborough's right and, and we've got three years left before we're all, you know, in the twilight zone or, or, or something like that? What is it that might go on that I can overthink about or be depressed about that can just cause me to pull away from the present? If you know somebody who, who has anxiety and perhaps they function highly with it, but you'll, you will be aware that there are times where, where they just kind of zone out. They're just not quite there. Because that's what anxiety does. It drags us away from things. Depression pulls us out of ourselves and makes us be absent. And often when we self-medicate it, we just make that worse. And I think, again, if I turn back to the text, Lamentations kind of draws us to think about this. Jeremiah is in a situation where everything is awful and bad. None of it's his fault, and yet he finds himself in the midst of it. And there's all this anguish and all this overwhelm, and despite all of this terrible stuff, read, read the letter. Uh, it's, I mean, read the book, rather. It's, it's intense in its kind of despair at points. And then right in the middle, this text appears that we read a little bit of last week. And in, in Lamentations 3, Jeremiah kind of pulls himself out of the despair for a moment and just makes a few statements. He says, this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. But then to continue beyond where we led, read last week, Jeremiah then says this, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. Jeremiah gets that somehow, if there's any hope in this, it's got to be, he's got to cling on to God. But notice he says, I will wait for him. Jeremiah says, I'm going to be here. I'm going to be present. I'm going to wait. Anxiety always wants you to be in tomorrow. Depression often wants you to be in the past or just despairing at the way things are. Anxiety wants you to be in tomorrow. What's going to happen tomorrow or next week or next month or next year? What happens after school? What happens after university? What happens after this job? What if I get a bigger job? What happens after retirement? There's a constant worry about what might happen in the future, and you never find yourself in the present. And Jeremiah says, I will wait for him. I will wait. Jesus calls us to be patient. Terrifying thought. But there's a way, when Jesus calls us to be patient, when Jeremiah says that I will wait for him, there's a sense in which what we're saying is that this moment right here has value to it. This moment has worth to it. And our anxieties and our depressions are trying to rob this moment of everything that it's worth because they want our brain to be elsewhere. The second part that I find myself relating to, and I'm not alone in scripture, and I know I'm not alone in this room, is that Jeremiah says, I will wait for him, which implies it just doesn't feel like he's here now. God never speaks in lamentations. We never hear from God in this book of despair. We only hear Jeremiah 
saying that he knows that he is there, even though his voice is missing at this particular moment. But often we look for the feeling of certainty. We want to be certain. We want to feel that God is with us. The problem is if you struggle with depression or anxiety or stress or overwhelm or or whatever it is that you're journeying through in your own mind, the problem is our feelings are often really skewed when our brains start haunting us. Our feelings become really unreliable. And here's the thing. Scripture has never promised, never does it promise that you will feel that God is always with you. It doesn't give you that. It doesn't promise you that. It doesn't offer that to us. What scripture does offer us is something slightly different. It promises us that God is always with us, even when you can't feel it. The psalmist seemed to know this. And in one of the great psalms, in Psalm 139, the psalmist speaks to this sense of the feeling of God and where is God and how do we find him. I'm quoting from the 400-year-old King James Version this morning just because sometimes its poetry is beautiful. The psalmist says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into the heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me, even the night shall be light around me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. The psalmist seems to know that it might not feel like it, but that he just can't escape God being with him all the time. See, our anxieties, we want the certainty. We want the feeling of certainty. We want to be in control. We want to be able to make sense of everything. We want the reason, and we want to put it all together. And the difficult thing is, actually, sometimes religion can actually be quite a good thing for that. If you want the certainty and the control, religion sort of offers it. It says, hey, if you do this, God will be with you. If you do that, God will be beside you. Don't do this because then God might, God might leave you. But, but follow these rules and, and you'll be okay. And sometimes we're drawn to that. As Christians, we can find ourselves drawn to a type of Christianity that says, here's the plan. Follow this plan and it will all feel okay. Christianity and the Bible don't give you that. Instead, they give you a promise that they ask you to trust in that God is always with you, that you can't escape him, that you can't get away from him, that whatever happens, God is with us and he's for us. God is trustworthy and God is faithful. See, so in scripture, the solution is a little different from what we always think. The solution isn't found in ourselves. It's not found in being stronger. It's not found in being better. It's not found in having a more robust mental well-being. Rather, Scripture constantly points us to the same thing, to say you've got to trust that God is with you. In a a, a brilliant book published posthumously, uh, Henry Nouwen's book, Following Jesus, Finding Our Way Home in an Age of Anxiety, Nouwen phrases it beautifully like this. God is always here. The great art of spiritual living is to pay attention to the breathing of the Spirit right where you are and to trust that there will be breathing of new life. The Spirit 
will reveal itself to you as you move on. That's the beauty of the spiritual life. You can be where you are. You don't have to be anywhere else. You can be fully present to the moment and trust that even in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your struggle, something of God is at work in you and wants to reveal itself to you. Be here. Be quiet. Listen. Depression and anxiety are liars. The difficulty of their lies is they come from within our own head. So they tell us things and they call us to things and they point things out that aren't true. The problem is it makes finding the solution within yourself notoriously difficult because what do you listen to? Are the voices that you've learned to trust actually telling you the truth? But let me say this. I want to be really clear on this. Talk to someone. Talk to a therapist. Talk to a professional. Talk to someone that loves you. 100% we should do this. But I also feel... I also feel that there's a need for us to sometimes lean into something beyond ourselves as well, to something that's transcendent, to something that comes from outside of us. I think that Nowen's advice is profound for us in our anxious age, which is actually what is God's spirit doing in you, and can you trust that? Jesus turns to his disciples in John chapter 16 and verse 13, and he says to them, the spirit will come and it will guide you into truth. And as an anxious person, I find myself resting in that because I want to have a voice that I can trust. I want to have something that I can believe in, something that I can lean into. And I think the profound truth of Scripture is it, it comes from God who is with us. Why don't you stand with me this morning? I, I think when you need truth because of your deafening lies the anxiety that screams falseness at you, the depression that preaches despair, maybe what you need is the spirit of Jesus. In John, in John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus talks about his spirit and he calls him the comforter. And I feel like that's what we so often need is we just need comfort in amidst all of our anxiety. So let me pray this for you, taken from now in as our benediction this morning. May you be here. May you be quiet, and may you listen. And may you know that God is with you, and that God is leading you into truth, a truth that will overwhelm your anxieties. Our prayer team will be here at the front as they are every service. If you feel you need someone to pray with you this morning, just someone just to stand with you and remind you that you are not alone and that God is with you, I'd love for you to come and talk to our prayer team in confidence and allow them to, to pray with you this morning. But for whatever it is that your journey is this week, let me simply say that may you find God's grace and peace to be overwhelming all of the other voices that would lie to you. Amen and amen.